If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honours the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. My name is Stephen Portio. Usually at this point you'd hear, my name's Andrew Carroll, but this episode is a little bit different and special. I had the pleasure of chatting with writer-director Paddy Slattery over Zoom, whose brilliant debut feature Broken Law, a Dublin-set crime thriller about two brothers on both sides of the law, will be available to watch in preview screenings from July 31st, before a full nationwide cinema release August 14th. I saw Broken Law earlier on in the year at the Dublin International Film Festival, or DIFF, mere weeks before the COVID lockdown. I'm a big fan of the movie, which I gave a glowing review to on Headstuff, a link to which I'll put in the show notes. During the interview with Paddy, I talked about why I was so taken with the movie. We had a great conversation which covered everything from the long journey to get the film made, his movie and filmmaking influences, some of which are names you'll frequently hear discussed on this show, releasing a movie into cinemas in a post-COVID world, his little former I Know That Face subjects Julia Binoche and Barry Keohan, and what might be next for Slattery. I hope people enjoy the interview and check out Broken Law in cinemas because having seen it at Div, I can say with confidence it's a film definitely worth seeing on the big screen. It shoots in all these Dublin locations, rarely seen in movies. It's tense and gripping, but also at times funny. The audience at Diff ate it up. Paddy was even one of the recipients of the festival's Erlingus Discovery Awards. Interviews like this with Paddy are something we want to do more of going forward on I Know That Face. Special episodes to spotlight the type of films myself and Andrew tend to really enjoy and champion on the podcast when discussing character actors. So maybe in the future when there's a cool Irish film or TV show coming out, or a great film from abroad at risk of maybe going underseen, we will try to reach out to the people behind it for a chat like this. That's enough for me anyway. Enjoy my interview with Paddy Slattery. Some people grow up idolising different people throughout their lives. I always wanted to be like my father. Look at the wall, man. It's a mother like being a free man. <laughs> it's liberating, mate. Liberating. Yeah. <laughs> What's going on here? So you're out then. It's no thanks to you either. I have an idea. Let's just say we can kill two boards with one stone. What I did yesterday was stupid. Put the gun down and let her go. I could have got somebody killed. Well, you didn't. You never asked me to do you another favour again. Do you think you're better than me or something? You have a girl kill, man! Get us off us. When he does, I'm going to bury the envelope with someone. This is the last face you ever see. You're Joe's friend. You don't get that money back to me. I'm gonna cut her off and head off. What's wrong with the family? What? I don't fancy losing you like we lost your father. Put it down. That's what were you thinking? <laughs> I was just doing my job. Hello, hello. Hey. How are you getting on? I'm good. Good. How's your lockdown been and, uh, you know, living through COVID generally? I I feel guilty for saying it because I know it was tough for a lot of people, especially those on the front line. But actually it was a, a much needed break that was well overdue because <laughs> for a long time, for over 10 years, I promised myself a bit of a break and it never happened. But 
the kind of lockdown kind of forced my hand a bit. I saw on Facebook you were binging a lot of uh, TV shows like Sopranos and stuff. I that was eighty six hours, eighty six episodes of sheer <laughs> brilliance from start to finish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, for those who are listening to this who may not know uh, the story of Broken Law, could you break down the plot for them? It's about a guard, Dave Connolly, a very well respected guard. Um, who was actually following in his father's uh, heroic footsteps. His father tragically died in the line of duty. So Dave is sort of emulating his, his father's uh, legacy. And um, the strange brother, Joe, younger brother, is just out of prison and gets embroiled in a, a robbery that goes wrong. So Dave suddenly has his loyalty to the law tested because he has to take the brother under the wing and hide him out. But during that process, Dave meets and falls in love with this unhappily married woman, Amy, who he later discovers is actually the victim of his brother's crime. So all hell breaks loose in poor old <laughs> Dave's life. So suddenly his his moral compass is, is uh, remised. And, uh, so it'll be an interesting uh, conflict. Um, I, I have a bit of a colourful imagination when it comes to... Uh, kind of story <laughs> and uh, it must be surreal and quite frustrating to spend so long working on your first feature and you know shoot it you know get it off the ground shoot it you know have a play at big festival and get very good reviews and then a worldwide pandemic hits and what's that been like and are you excited now that it's finally coming out it's all so bizarre it's also bizarre especially in this industry um because with feature films it is so mental job just to get it off the ground in the first place and get it made and so I mean we were so lucky in one respect that we got our film made and we got it prepared for a Dublin International Film Festival premiere and we had the big sellout screening in the IMAX theatre 400 people an amazing uh, just an amazing night an amazing celebration for everybody and then suddenly uh the whole, whole of society is sort of derailed in one respect. And it just, we were so lucky that we had that moment to celebrate an achievement. Um, like, cause I know a lot of filmmakers who unfortunately are actually mid production and for a production to come to a stop, it's, it's absolutely astronomical in terms of the looks of having to reschedule that then the financial implications, an absolute disaster. So we managed to be very lucky and avoid that. And now, consequently, we were able to, I guess, prepare for a theatrical release and an international sales deal during lockdown. So honestly, we're, we're one of the lucky ones, uh, Stephen. Uh, I I can imagine the conversation here would be very different if, if we went into lockdown prior to finishing that film. I mm. would be a happy camper. <laughs> and um, do you think COVID could work in Broken Law's favour like I imagine given by August 14th most people who go to the cinema regularly will be dying to get back and also the film won't be competing with all these like big international movies like Tenet's been pushed back Fast and Furious 9's been pushed back Mulan initially we had intended on releasing on August the 19th and because Tenet Mulan and those uh, you mentioned they had scheduled to open in late July so we were going to let them have their, you know, fanfare. And then we'll sneak in at the end and uh, hopefully uh, draw in some local Irish audiences. But then when we heard that they were all pushing back, 
suddenly a whole window, a three or four week window opened up in all of the cinemas in Ireland and like Rob and Nell in our distribution company, they were on that immediately. They decided to move it forward and take advantage of that open window and the lack of competition. And now cinemas hopefully will be a little bit more hospitable when it comes to allowing us to have a couple of weeks to try and build an audience. Mm. Because traditionally, I'm not sure if you're aware, but traditionally with independent films especially, you're given a week. If you're performing, they'll give you another week. If you're not performing, you're gone. So you really have to hit the ground running. Whereas, you know, like the old record company in the 50s and 60s, and even the film industry, generally a product when it's released would, would be word of mouth that would sell it. If the product was good, it would, uh, people would go out in dribs and drabs and it would garner kind of an audience that way. So we have a very old-fashioned way of hopefully building an audience. And that opportunity definitely wouldn't have been presented to us. So it, we're hoping it's uh, it'll play into our hands. Uh, but let's just say we have an opportunity now to present our film to the whole of this island. I know our target audience with this film is... I mean, it's a, it's a younger audience of film. Not that we don't want older audiences to come in and watch our film as well, but I think a study has been done recently where more of the younger generation are more inclined to want to get back out to live events, um, whereas especially with the nature of this uh, pandemic or this uh, virus, it seems to be, generally speaking, it seems to be targeting the older people. So I think that has made people of an older generation a bit more reluctant to uh, get out there into society but look who knows we're on a wing and a prayer at the minute people might not go out we hope they do but <laughs> we're just going to sit and wait now and you said at the diff premiere that getting the film made was like a really arduous process there was a kickstarter in 2016 um can you take me through the process of getting the movie made and the different iterations of its screenplay because I saw that um, it underwent some changes. Its first incarnation was it was titled The Broken Law of Attraction and it was more of an ensemble piece. It was almost like Magnolia, sort of an opus where lots of people's lives are intertwined and one man's actions would cause the consequences of uh, someone else's life over here. And I loved how fate and destiny were almost conflated but I, I just love I, I mean that was the story that that propelled my motivation at the beginning was I love the idea of fate versus coincidence and in my life especially especially during a car crash when I analyzed all of the different uh, situations that led to my car crash on the surface they looked almost coincidental some of the moments felt so coincidental but then when I, I think back to my actions leading into those moments, I realized that the outcome of that crash was merely the consequences of my own actions. So it forced me to, I guess, take responsibility for the outcome in my life. Um, and that's what I wanted to put these characters through. And so films like Magnolia and, and Intermission would have inspired that kind of theme. But it was true necessity that we had to rework the script later down the line because when we got into proper production development in 2017, we realized that it was very unlikely that we're going to be able to raise the desired budget. And um, so when you're talking about a huge ensemble cast and, and lots of major locations. So basically, we decided to concentrate on the story between the two brothers. 
and condense it down and only focus on what we really needed for the essentials for the spine of the story to work. And during that transition, we realized that Simon and I, my producer, Simon from Failsafe, we decided, I think the story I was speaking to was that it was more of a story of brotherly loyalty, but not just loyalty, but legacy as well and how legacy plays into our actions and I guess how we would tend to behave based on uh, our outward perceptions of other people. So we like playing with that sort of dynamic between the two brothers. And lo and behold, after maybe a year and a half of developing the script with a couple of script editors, we found that it was no longer uh, the broken law of attraction. It no longer leaned on those themes of fate versus coincidence. And um, yeah, we had to change the title and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I heard that the movie was very close to production twice, but then um, it had fallen through. Like, what were the reasons for that? The, the first time, I guess, we were involved with a production company that had a very busy slate, and unfortunately they weren't in a prioritised budget. That, that was no problem. But the second time around, again, we were collaborating with different producers, and, I mean, we had a guarantee that there was money on the table for a 300000 budget, we were all set to shoot down in Cork. In fact, with our location set, our cast set, everything was ready to go. Two days' time, I was about to load up in my van and head down and check into a hotel. And, and suddenly, the night before, um, one of our main financiers pulled out. And um, it was like a domino effect. Once one went, it was mm -hmm. like a house of cards. Um, it all kind of came crashing down. And that was difficult to take because... We were so psyched up. We had everybody committed schedules. There was like six weeks of pre-production. Oh, I was devastated, I'll be honest. And I think I nearly, I think I took to the bed for about three or four days after. I was just physically, mentally, and even financially devastated at that point. I thought, this is it. We're never going to get this film made. So Simon and I, Simon's my uh, producer on this film, Simon and I got together and said, look, let's start again and let's condense it down to a 150k budget. And at least if, if we're working on that level, we can call the shots. Because when you're relying on bigger finance from external sources, you're almost at the mercy of their creative and, and, and business objectives. So, um, yeah, we did it ourselves. We got our own crew, our own cast, and uh, we did it. And thankfully... In hindsight, now it was probably the best thing that could ever have happened because the fact that we had complete control over our product, it, it reflects that on screen because I don't think we'd have the personal film we have on screen if not for the way we did it, if that makes sense. Mm. It's that type of movie that I love, like these very energetic, gritty crime thrillers and you know, it's about cops and robbers and I, I feel those movies don't get made as much anymore because of how many you know Marvel movies or big franchises there are and you know reminded me of things like heat yeah. and we own the night and there's even like a bit of scandi noir because it's it's so you know gritty and i was just wondering um i know you mentioned that you were inspired by stuff like magnolia and intermission but as you sort of pivoted more towards a crime thriller and as you were shooting it was there any movies in that vein that you were inspired by we own the night was certainly one i looked at heat i mean i'm a big fan of heat anyway was it michael mann that directed heat yes that was certainly in my psyche but um when i knew that we were concentrating on the brotherly dynamic i went to one of my favorite films martin scorsese's first well first first sort of 
breakthrough definitively Martin Scorsese film uh, uh, Mean Street because right. uh, I, I love that dynamic between Keitel's character and De Niro's character um, there's a reason because Mean Streets has its flaws. When you look at it, it has its problems. You can see even its budgetary restraints. You can see an early Martin Scorsese trying out a predictor style. Now, there's, there's a reason that it, that it still resonates with today's audiences and why it's still alive. It's because that core story, I mean, it's a story that's been told for maybe millennia that will never grow old, that almost brotherly dynamic. It's almost like... Um, Ben Hur, you know, in Ben Hur, there's that sort of a, I know there's an adopted brother scenario, but there's that brotherly dynamic, uh, and it's almost a good versus evil. Cain and Abel. I, I looked for stories of that elk that I could lean on, and uh, yeah, Mean Streets was certainly one of them. But I, I know it. We on the night wasn't there like a like a cop versus a, like a brother who was uh, on the other side of the law as well. That was We on the night. Yeah. Uh, Joaquin Phoenix and uh, Mark Wahlberg, wasn't it? Yeah. So, so yeah, I was. I guess I was looking for films that that worked and done it before. But the crime thriller genre—it's almost like a straight to straight to video kind of genre now. Because I mean, with the cinema now, obviously the ten poles, the superhero films—they sort of chew up that space, and it leaves very little for indie films. And but but I don't know. I. I I guess I did want to make a film that would entertain audiences, but I wanted to try and stay away from some of the more familiar tropes. Now, don't get me wrong, Broken Law has its... There are the tropes in there, the sort of uh, genre tropes, but I wanted to add an extra layer of, of sort of personality and humanity into it. I wanted to give the characters sort of a more of a three-dimensional structure where they feel like real people that you might run into on the street, you know, that kind of way. Because the one thing I didn't like about the, the crime thriller genre is I think there's lots of those sort of archetypal characters that are almost, they almost feel one-dimensional. Mm. You can't quite relate to them. And even in Broken Law, whereas, of course, we have our antagonist and our protagonist, but I wanted our audience to be able to identify with both. Because at the end of the day, Wallace and Pete, who are played by John Connors and... Uh, Ryan Lincoln, although they are the stereotypical bad guys in this film, they're not really bad guys at heart. They're young lads that are disenfranchised by a country that doesn't really give a damn about them. These are guys that have only got two options in life. Either emigrate to Australia or Canada or somewhere and get work there, or do what these guys decide to do, take the easy way out and go on the rob uh, to try and get some money on the table. So, I can certainly identify with those people, and if, God forbid, if my life went a different direction, I might find found myself in a position like Wallace, where it was like, I either go on the rob or I feck off to Australia, and that's that's a sad reality for a lot of young lads and women in this country. And I wanted to kind of speak to that. Ireland is in a, such a strange transitional period. We're almost feeling like we're losing our identity, but we're also discovering a new identity, and there's resistance to that. And and some people get kind of along the way, and I feel some of our characters in Broken Law are almost almost lost sheep in a society that they don't quite feel like they belong in anymore. What I love about the movie is that I feel all the characters, anytime they make an action, it's so well established why they're making that action. Especially as more the movie goes on and you learn more about uh, the two brothers and their father and family before then, and like it was it was like they were always set to do what they do. I think what 
kicks off the plot is that Tristan has these like money pressures because his landlord is raising the rent and even just a little detail like that just makes the movie feel so much more authentic and relatable on top of having all those themes about you know family and like the difficulty of doing the right thing when family is involved and how like how difficult it is to get away from your family's past you know um i know i think all that stuff is what makes the movie really special i know i didn't probably give her the attention and love that it really deserved but the mother character in particular played by ali nikair mother especially irish mothers traditionally they are the real heroes in our society they're the ones that they're the strong ones generally. They're the ones, although, like, I guess generations ago, the men, the quote, men of the family would be out doing the hard graft, but the women, what they had to do, but not just physically do in a world, but emotionally, they had to compromise their own ambitions for other people's interests. And that's what the mother does in this film. She sacrifices her own happiness, her own truth, for the sake of her two sons. Mm. And she harbors this lie for years about a man that she would have loved but would have been heartbroken by and she would have lost to a tragedy. And yet she put on this front, this facade for her, for the sake of her kids. And that's the sort of unsung hero of Ireland society anyway. And it's probably, probably universal as well. But the mother for me, Irene Connolly, she's the real hero in this story. Yet we don't, maybe... Maybe it's apt that we don't give it the love and attention it deserves because in general they never do get that. But I certainly see it. And when Ali, Ali, our actor who played uh, Irene, oh my God, when she turned up in wardrobe on set and she switched on into Irene's character, holy moly, it was like my mother coming alive in front of me. <laughs> Without spoiling it for anyone, you know there's a special scene in there with her and her son and it, it comes to tears. Uh, oh my god when we were shooting that scene I was sitting out in the other room watching the monitor and my I couldn't even see the monitor my eyes were just I was welling up I was crying before we, we could even call cut but. <laughs> that's another thing I think that elevates Broken Law above you're saying those movie, those crime movies that have, might have like more one dimensional characters is um, is the female characters because I think Amia is a, a great character and is another person whose actions in the movie feel very foregrounded and you know, she's never just a damsel in distress, as these characters can be in these stories. Yeah, Malia Devro, who, uh, who played Amy, she, again, I even said this to uh, to Gemalia, I, again, if I was writing that script again, I would, I would breed more love and attention into that character. We wanted to stray away from the stereotypical damsel in distress. We wanted her to have a little bit more meat and bones with her with her character and I think there was more potential in there for that character but at the same time I think we did honor her in a certain way because I mean she had her own shit going on in her life so I was even glad at the end of the film again trying not to spoil it for anybody but I'm glad she had her little moment do you mm. know that moment I'm talking about yeah. in the final montage I'm glad we gave her that moment because that meant her character that could now go on and uh, maybe do something else with her life kind of thing but, you know, it's all learning for me as a writer because five years ago, I wouldn't have been aware of my writing style, but I certainly wouldn't have written women in the way that women deserve to be written. Uh, we, you, we've heard of the female gaze and the male gaze. I certainly would have been writing through the eyes of a man uh, because most of the films I've loved, 
all through my life are very masculine kind of films the, the spaghetti westerns and the yeah. crime thrillers and even the revenge movies like uh, I love those kind of macho <laughs> movies you know what I mean so my I guess my idea of what a female character really should be in a film was quite tainted so yeah I had to unlearn generations of of films that that became like films I love and now because I love watching older movies I love watching movies pre-50s and now when you see them particularly in relation to gender, race, religion. If we look back in those old movies, like uh, Gone with the Wind, which was in the spotlight there recently for the racism, um, when you look at them now, you realise, my God, where we were psychologically as a, as a society, how backwards we were in terms of how we treated people, how we marginalised people, even people with disabilities like myself. Extraordinary, so... Uh, what I love and what I'm inspired by with film is that we get to look back and learn about ourselves yeah. and hopefully our next generation of f- filmmakers and writers and poets and songwriters hopefully our writing will also sort of evolve with our perceptions yeah. that's all very true and um, you, you brought up Gemma there but I think the cast is uniformly very good and it's this great blend of uh, established faces like people like Gary Lydon and John Connors, but then there's also people who have had small roles in projects before that you've given, you know, greater spotlight to and have given lead roles. And I thought Tristan in the lead was superb and he was in your shorts and he was attached to Broken Law since 2016. So it seems like you and him are close. Uh, can you talk about that relationship and what led you to cast him in, as in the main part? Absolutely. I, I love Tristan. I When I was casting a short film in 2012 called Runner, uh, a gentleman called Christian Cody. Christian was doing my storyboards for the short film. An amazing artist and an amazing filmmaker in his own right. But he had worked with Tristan previously and he sent me over a short uh, showreel of Tristan's and he said, you're casting a runner, have a look at this guy. And I looked at Tristan and I immediately saw he had a very classic look, very Henry Fonda look, that depth in the eyes. He even looked very similar, even a little bit of a a Willem Dafoe or a Mike mm. Fassbender type type look about him. I got on the phone and I was chatting with Tristan. He was actually flying off to Italy on a holiday and he cancelled his holiday to uh, work on Runner mm. with us. And uh, from my very first conversation on the phone with him, we both almost symbiotically just sang in harmony of what I wanted, what he wanted and how he went about getting it. And uh, I think he's an incredible artist and a writer and director in his own right. So it was, I mean, from early, as early as 2014, I knew that Tristan was going to be our Dave. I didn't know who else was going to fill in the other spots, but Tristan was in because, like you said, that there was, he's a fresh face. Not many people have seen him on the film scene, and there's nothing more refreshing. As an audience member myself, going to see an Irish film, and seeing somebody that you've never seen before, but just being completely swept away by. Mm. And I think Tristan and Graham Early, in fact, who plays our Joe, Ryan Lincoln, although Ryan is featured in Kissing Candice. And, but all these young, fresh faces, ah, Jesus, we've got such a depth of talent in this country. Mm. And it's such a privilege to be able to give them that platform on our film. And hopefully, hopefully it will lead to more jobs for them in the future. Yeah, I particularly want to see Ryan Lincoln in more things. I think he's a really 
great talent. Oh, look, he is so, and he's so cool to work with. Mm. There's just no ego with him. He's just in, do the business, have fun with it, and go. And actually, the same with the whole lot of them. And John Connors. Now, John would probably be the highest profile in our cast. But John, again, no airs or graces, no ego. Well, I mean, every actor needs a bit of ego now and again, <laughs> but to, uh, to be able to do what they do in the first place. But like John says to me, he said, uh, I'm a, he calls me a, a, an actor's director. Uh, I think what he means is that I give an actor the license. I basically hand them over a blueprint of a character and say, go body it and, and, and bring whatever you want to the table, but bring it with honesty, sincerity and, and passion. And, and whatever arises out of that performance is yours and yours alone. And that gives them the freedom then and the confidence to play with the character, discover the character. We work with the humanity and, and build the world around that. So we're almost doing it in, in reverse. And for me personally, I believe that's the most, I guess, attractive version of, of humanity. It's, it feels more intimate. It feels more relatable. Definitely. And um, you said at the dip premiere that um, Broken Law was made pretty cheaply. And I, I think you said 150 grand. That's right, yeah. Mm. It um, looks like it cost a lot more. And I was just wondering, how, how do you make a movie that looks so great on such a, you know, a shoestring budget? The thing about this film industry is that when it's a debut feature and when it's a micro budget, you almost have a license to be able to call in favors. And our crew, our cast everyone took massive discounts on that. Now, everyone got, got paid, except for myself, but everybody got, <laughs> everybody else got paid, but they took a massive discount. And, and if, the, if it wasn't for that, we wouldn't have been able to do it. That, that price, it's sort of a passion project, and it's not about the money, it's about getting it done, and it's about the potential of possibly creating careers for people. Suddenly, everyone throws their help, in, or sort of throws a hand into the hat, and... Um, that's the only way you can do it for 150 but really, if you were to break it down and if everyone wants to get paid their standard rates, you'd be talking about maybe a million quid on screen. Mm. That's still relatively small. But to be honest, we ran out of budget in post-production and um, we applied then to Screen Ireland for some completion funding. Thankfully, Dervla and Aileen and them, they got behind the project and gave us the completion funded that we needed so that that helped us get over the line in post-production because as you know especially when it comes to editing your film color grading sound mixing adr all that kind of crack it's an expensive process and you really can't cut corners doing that especially with sound if you don't get that sound right your audience will not forgive you mm. they'll forgive a bad picture but they won't forgive bad sound you know yourself in this industry, when you've got a financial institute behind you like that, I guess it adds a certain level of credibility to the mm-hmm. production as well. So, You'd said earlier that the movie was going to shoot in Cork, but it's a, it's a Dublin set now, right? It is indeed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were going to literally just for convenience and for budget reasons, we were going to shoot in Cork. It was all very nondescript originally in the script. I guess I gave the lads then the freedom to you know, bring your own colloquial accent to it, but at least give it a certain level of neutralism where maybe an audience outside Ireland might still be able to... Mm. You know yourself, any Irish film, particularly a colloquial accent, 
outside of Ireland would generally need subtitles. And I was just wondering, how'd you go about scanning those locations? Because I'm, I'm fairly sure some of it was shot in my area. I live in Dublin, because in Artane and Harmonstown. Um, so it was great seeing those places, watching it. But um, yeah, how much work went into, you know, finding like these interesting places to shoot in? Because I just think, you know, it, it's more visually striking and also just makes the film feel more authentic. I, I completely agree. We wanted it to feel very real. We didn't want to shoot in the generic Dublin locations, the sort of poster image. Uh, Caroline Keeley, our locations manager, right? She was amazing. And we, we scouted everywhere, north, south, east and west of Dublin. Uh, we even went down as far as Bray. What we wanted to do was find somewhere where we could set up a base and work within a very small sort of two-kilometer, three-kilometer radius. And that area there near the East Wall in Dublin, it gave us such a broad variety of different visual aesthetics. So, like, you could have the inner city or inner town kind of look. You could have a suburban look. You could have, a, there's the financial district there, and there's the skyline littered with cranes. There's lots of train stations. It felt very real. And almost you could almost smell the streets through the screen, you know, that kind of way. I just loved it. It just looked um, visually, I thought it looked attractive because, again, we didn't want to portray a part of Dublin. We didn't want it to look drab and, you know, bland. I mean, there's lots of life and lots of colour and, and diversity in the city of Dublin. And we wanted that to translate on screen as well. Mm. Uh, you said in 2016 um, about Broken Law when you launched your crowdfunder. Um, I guess it's the kind of film I hope will draw groups of friends out to the cinemas for a good evening's entertainment. I'm not trying to rewrite the rules of narrative structure or pioneer a new formula for cinema literacy with this film. That'll be my follow-up. Now that Broken Law is about to be unleashed onto the masses, have you any other projects you're excited to get off the ground? I haven't decided yet. And I know some of the lads are asking me, right, what's next, what's next? <laughs> and I don't want to say what's next yet because I don't want to emotionally commit just yet because... After this cinema release, right, I'm going into lockdown myself. I'm going to hide out in the studio for about three months going into Christmas, and I'm going to come out the end with a script, and I'll just hand it, stick it on the table and say, right, lads, that's the next masterpiece. <laughs> but I have a feeling there's one particular story, one story that's still pulling at my heart, and I have a feeling that that's going to be the one extremely personal, and it's going to be extremely controversial. <laughs> it's going to win a palm door it's, uh, it's going to look something like a Michael Haneke's style where he can just park a camera right and let the world unfold within that frame it's quite brutal his style because some of his editing is ruthless and relentless I just find myself getting lost in a Haneke film any Haneke film that I've ever seen I've just been um stunned emotionally by the viscerality of a world that you're basically left to sit there and observe. I don't feel like I participate in a Hanukkah film. I feel safe in an objective kind of way where I can see this world, but my God, what a world he creates. Like, all I can tell you is when I come up with this idea and when I commit to the, to the script, I'll let you know. <laughs> Please do. But right now I've got yeah. I've several hundred ideas swirling around in my head. Think about the times we're living in now, culturally, God, I mean, it doesn't take much to look around and be inspired to write because there's so much going on 
socially, politically, religiously, racially, sexually. Ugh, there's so much food for thought out there that I don't think writers will be struggling to find what their next story <laughs> is, if you know what I mean. Definitely. So funny you were talking about Michael Haneke because we just did an episode on Juliette Binoche and we were talking about uh, Cachet and a bit about Code Unknown, so tying everything uh, in. Juliette Binoche is one of my... Forgive me for saying this, it's a very lad thing to say. <laughs> well, I've never had posters of actresses on my bedroom, but if I did have a poster growing up, it would have been Juliette Binoche. Oh, so beautiful. And such an incredible actor. Oh my God. Yeah, I love her. <laughs> and uh, we, you've talked a bit about what your next project could be. Um, I was wondering, because we're an actor's podcast, is there any actor in particular that you would like to work with? There's so much talent in this country that may sadly never get the spotlight that they deserve. Um, so many names. I mean, he's been in Everton Bar the Crib recently. I hope he doesn't mind me saying this, but Mo Dunford. Oh, I yeah. love Mo Dunford. Yeah, incredible actor. I, when I watched Patrick's Day for the first time, I immediately knew that I had to get it on DVD and watch it and study his performance in it because I thought it was a sort of a once-in-a-generation performances. And I did, and I watched it, and I studied his performance, and I was floored by it again. I thought he was absolutely amazing. And when you see an actor like that, it's almost... It's like working with Tristan, Graham, John, Jamalia, Ryan, all these, these amazing character actors, Ali, Gary. I mean, there's lots of actors. I mean, it's kind of obvious saying Saoirse Ronan, but who wouldn't want to work with Saoirse Ronan? She's Ireland's Meryl Streep. But other lesser known, there's a young actor coming up. Her name's Hazel Dupe. She had a small role in Michael Inside, Frank Berry's Michael Inside, and she was in Tristan's short film, Cunis. Now, she is one of those actors, and it's very rare that I, I see it in an actor where you see it immediately in their eyes. The sincerity, the honesty, the passion, the, the humanity, the humility. Oh, her eyes are alive on screen, and, and even when you watch her in Tristan's short film, which was deservedly so nominated for an IFTA, and I hope it wins it because it's an amazing short film. But when you see Hazel in it, she will break your heart. She will break your heart in her performance. How many actors can convey that emotion through screen without dialogue? Not many. So there's a young actor I would love to work with. Um, but look, there's so many young actors coming up. Um, I love, I know he's, he's a big name now, but I've always loved, from the first time I saw him in Mark O'Connor's Stalker, um, Barry Keown. We did a whole episode dedicated to Barry Keohan. Uh, what like what an actor. Yeah. That face, those eyes, his his mannerisms. It's just uh, I remember that feeling I got when I saw Killian Murphy for the first time. Uh, Killian Murphy for me, I, I think he's of all the actors in all of the world in all of history, I think Killian Murphy is one of my favorite. May is an actor. I think he's um that's an actor I'd love to work with actually. <laughs> so I can't wait for your Michael Haneke inspired Achille Murphy, Mo Dunford starring role. That'll be great. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? <laughs> um, I think that's everything I wanted to ask you. Uh, thanks so much for taking the time and speaking to me. Look, it was my, it was my pleasure. I could talk film all day. <laughs> <laughs> um, good luck with the movie. So, previews July 31st and then uh, a wider release on August 14th. 
if I meet you out there in the cinema, I'll buy you a socially distant pint. <laughs> you, you wrote a, an absolutely incredible review. Uh, thanks a million for being there at the premiere as well. No problem. Thanks for making a great movie. When the next movie comes out, we'll do this again. <laughs> great. I'll chat you soon, soon. and uh, yeah, take care over there. Take care. You do have a good day. Thanks for listening. We'll be back to regular programming in two weeks with an episode on everyone's favorite oddball, Caleb Andrew Jones. On that, I'll see you later, Cinephiles. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. 